0: The obsession with weight loss at all costs and doing extreme diets and crazy stuff is not the way to go. Because if you naturally just help your health improve, if your body needs to lose weight, it will.
1: Welcome to Commune. My name is Jeff Krasnow. Today we're exploring the topics of glucose metabolism and body recomposition. So you might ask, what is body recomposition? Well, it is what it sounds like. It's transforming the composition of your body. Specifically, body recomposition is the process of reducing fat and increasing lean muscle mass. Unlike traditional weight loss or muscle building approaches, body recomposition finds a balance between fat loss and muscle gain. Now, body recomposition, or fat loss and muscle gain, is a much better way to think about health versus just simple weight loss. So, excess body fat, specifically around visceral organs, is linked to various health risks, including cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and metabolic syndrome. By decreasing body fat, you enhance metabolic function and lower the risk of these obesity-related conditions. Muscle, on the other hand, plays a crucial role in metabolism. Now, obviously, it is associated with improved strength and is protective against age-related conditions like sarcopenia. But in addition, muscle is a glucose sink. It helps to regulate blood sugar levels and up-levels your metabolic health. But muscle weighs more than fat. So this scale might actually go up in your efforts to shift the ratios of fat to muscle to a healthy balance. But the number on the scale shouldn't be the end-all and be-all if what you're looking for is comprehensive and long-term health. Now, preventing sarcopenic obesity is another benefit of body recomposition. Now, sarcopenic obesity is characterized by the simultaneous presence of both sarcopenia, or loss of muscle mass, and obesity, excess body fat. The insidious thing about sarcopenic obesity is that you can sometimes appear from the outside to be pretty healthy, but when sarcopenia and obesity coexist in your body, it can have really negative synergistic effects on health, leading to greater functional impairments and an increased risk of chronic diseases. sarcopenic obesity is a particular concern because it combines the adverse consequences of muscle loss with those of excessive body fat now what you're going to hear today is a series of segments from conversations that i've had with today's experts on the topic of glucose metabolism and body recomposition and the protocols that you can implement to begin to reconstitute your body fat to muscle ratios in a way that creates lasting health and longevity. Now we'll begin with a discussion on glucose and how managing glucose is one of the keys to lowering body fat. But before we dive in, I have a teeny favor to ask of you. Here at Commune, we're curious, what topics do you wanna hear about on the podcast next year? Well, you can go to onecommune.com slash 2024 survey to let us know. Who knows? We might even create a whole episode based on your idea. So first up is Jessie Achospé, also known as the glucose goddess. Jesse is a French biochemist, best-selling author, and founder of a movement that has helped millions of people improve their health. So without further delay. Here's Jesse on how and why a healthy glucose metabolism can lead to fat loss. Culture in many ways has hijacked our evolution. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we were used to having periods of abundance where we would have more glucose in our blood and then periods of scarcity, um, which would trigger other kinds of pathways. So insulin always has its counterpart, glucagon from the pancreas, for example, and in low glycemic states on the Serengeti, um, that would, as you say, at the, at the end of the book, I found it actually fascinating. You talk about cravings a little bit, and you kind of talk, bore into the, the adaptive mechanisms of evolution, and say basically, hunger uh, stemming from a low glycemic state Um, on the Serengeti meant like, okay, you got to go find some food and guess what, the liver can release glycogen now and even make glucose from component parts called gluconeogenesis. Um, so our body is evolved that way so beautifully, but now in 2023, um, that craving isn't really coming from a biological need it's coming from these crashes right and then of course then we have that craving and then we go to fulfill that craving and you have some great tips about how to deal with cravings and not to get ahead of ourselves but I thought it was really really interesting
0: yeah it's quite fascinating and and the study that really shifted our understanding of cravings was done at Yale I believe it's a 2018 study and they put Um, And bless these researchers. I mean, they come up with the most Mm -hmm. incredible experiments. So they placed uh, participants in an fMRI scanner, the big machines Mm -hmm. that, you know, image your brain. And um, while the participants were in the scanner, a scientist showed them on a screen photos of, you know, crave worthy foods like cookies and burgers and stuff. And Mm -hmm. they asked the participants to rate how much they wanted to eat that food, those foods. And at the same time, the participants were hooked up to a machine that was measuring their glucose levels. And the scientists found something amazing. They found that when people's glucose levels were you know, steady and at a stable, normal range, people didn't really rate those foods very highly. They were not really drawn to eating them. But then when the participants' glucose levels were low, all of a sudden they were like, 10 out of 10 cookie 10 out of 10 the burger i need it and the scanner revealed that the part of their brain that is responsible for cravings was activating and flashing up like crazy hmm. and this low glucose state you know yes in the past we would only get to that point of really low glucose levels because we hadn't eaten in four days but today After a big glucose spike, it is very common to experience also this big crash in glucose, which can put you at that low glycemic state, which makes you crave more starches and sugars. And then what do you do? You eat a cookie because you're like, I need sugar right now. And then another big spike happens and after that huge spike a huge drop and bam you're right back in that cravings place and that's really the glucose roller coaster that many of us are on and we don't even know you know that this is coming from our glucose levels we just think oh i'm just somebody who has cravings i'm just somebody who doesn't have enough willpower to resist them well Mm. that's the thing it's like actually if you fix the underlying issue a lot of these things go away and it's quite if you know it's quite a quite a quick and remarkable transition to go through Hmm.
1: yeah you do such a beautiful job communicating in general but specifically on instagram um kind of demonstrating what healthy rolling hills of glucose look like Mm -hmm. versus kind of uh, the spikes of the, the Alps or the Andes yeah. or the Rockies, you know, yes. you want to avoid the Rockies and the, and the Andes yeah, when exactly. it comes to glucose levels. <laughs> but, um, you know, one thing that you mentioned, uh, in the book around cravings is that, you know, because of these adaptive mechanisms, uh, uh our body has the ability to essentially provide its own glucose to a certain extent. And so if you have a craving, um, and this is not always easy to do, but just wait 20 minutes. Right. And mm-hmm. your body, your liver will take care of the craving on its own.
0: That's step one. Yeah. It's like when you're yeah. having a craving. I I recommend you set a little timer for 20 minutes and you tell yourself, okay, if in 20 minutes I still crave that food, I'll eat it. But sometimes within those 20 minutes, your liver releases glucose, your glucose levels come back up. So that craving is less Mm -hmm. activated, but now you already have the thought of the chocolate cake. And so to me, I just find it really tough when I, (laughs) when I was (laughs) like, I need that cake to then, even if, you know, physiologically I'm not craving it anymore, I just kind of want the taste. So a better solution is to try to avoid those spikes in the first place, you know, so that you don't even think about the chocolate cake. That's, that's how I see it.
1: (laughs) Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, I'm a, I'm an intermittent faster and I'm always putting myself through the process of trying to delineate between biological need and psychological desire.
0: How do you do it? I find it really hard.
1: It is really hard. I mean, you know, honestly, it's very tied into a meditation practice Mm. where, for me anyways, where I can kind of step back and witness phenomena arising Mm -hmm. moment to moment and not just be identified with it or fixated on it or be carried away by it. So, you know, fasting has a lot of biological benefits and this this is not an episode on fasting necessarily, But there is also sort of a spiritual component to it, which is, you know, the craving not to crave, which, of course, is a paradox. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the ways at that is trying to cultivate um, that space, as Viktor Frankl says, between stimulus and response. Right. So if you can cultivate that space and then try to pull apart, you know, what is a need and what is a desire? Mm-hmm. Um, what do I actually really need, and what is just pleasure? It's mm-hmm. um, very hard, but it's it's you know like anything else, we go to the gym, we have all these different regimes to for hypertrophy and to grow muscle and to grow cardiovascular health. Well, we can apply that same theory to our our psychological or mental fitness, and you know sometimes. That helps when we're trying to find that space.
0: It does. But I would also say, you know, when you're getting this biological response because of the glucose roller coaster of being exhausted or having this strong craving because of these spikes and these dips, like it's really hard to just find any i find and i used to be on this roller coaster non-stop i found it really hard to find any space to really try to pause mm-hmm. and not give into it because yes our mind is powerful but our body is really powerful too and when it's like a you know it's a physiological thing going on it's quite hard to just witness yeah exert, yeah. yeah
1: exert top-down pressure exactly 97 of our lives is bottom-up
0: yeah and I, I hear a lot of stories of people who feel really bad because they feel like they don't have enough willpower or they don't have that sort of mind training that you're talking about and yeah. they feel quite um helpless and hopeless and in those cases it's much easier to start developing that mental meditation practice if your glucose levels are steady and you're not trying to fight this like monster happening underneath your skin. So I would say like steady your glucose first and then, you know, become as powerful as you, Jeff, that doing this work. But if you're like nonstop eating starches and sugars all day, it's going to be real hard for you to try to just control it, um, without fixing the biological thing.
1: So for folks that don't have a continuous glucose monitor, which is the overwhelming majority of people, um, what would be some of the primary symptoms of chronic glucose spikes?
0: The primary symptoms are cravings, as we just talked about. So feeling like you want to eat sweet things, mid-morning, mid-afternoon, after dinner, Getting these really intense hunger pangs, where where anything around you that is food, you might just want to jump on it. You know, a bag of crisps. Like you're at the, you see a vending machine, you walk past a bakery, and just this, this these urges that control you in terms of wanting to eat carbs. That's a very common symptom of the roller coaster. A second one that is related is just constant hunger so feeling like you need to eat every couple of hours that is a very clear sign that your body is dependent on these glucose spikes to make energy so you have breakfast two hours later you're starving then you have lunch and two hours later you're starving and you're just eating all day and when you steady your glucose levels you're able much more easily to go for you know four or five six hours without eating without it feeling like a biological emergency to your body to get some more food um, and then i think energy is something that is so interesting to unpack because when you're experiencing glucose spikes your energy levels go up and down all the time so you feel fatigued you feel tired mid-morning you need coffee you're just you just have a hard time you know going through the day going grocery shopping and like it just everything feels really sluggish and what's really cool is that the science shows us that what's actually happening every time you have a glucose spike is that the little factories in your cells your mitochondria are actually taking a pretty big hit and they become stressed out by this big glucose spike And instead of being able to transform that glucose into energy, which is their job and their function, that big influx of glucose just makes them, you know, go and strike (laughs) as Mm. the French would do. And and those those mitochondria striking, you feel that as this chronic fatigue. So you're still eating the foods that you were told give you energy, like Mm -hmm. breakfast cereal, orange juice. But on the inside, long-term, your body's ability to make energy is being compromised. So that's a really interesting and common symptom of this glucose roller coaster. Mm. Then there are other symptoms that, depending on who you are, your body, your medical history, you might see them or not. Brain fog is a big one. So when your neurons experience this glucose roller coaster, you can feel it as brain fog as the information between them gets slowed down. You might yeah. see fertility problems. So, you know, no ovulating, missed periods, difficult menopause symptoms. You might see balding on the head if you're female, etc. cetera. Um, you might also see skin issues like rosacea, psoriasis, eczema, which are all inflammation-based issues. And those mm-hmm. glucose spikes increase inflammation drastically. And then long-term, as we mentioned, prediabetes, type 2 diabetes but also you know we're starting to understand that a lot of chronic issues get much better when you get your glucose levels down like heart disease like alzheimer's like cancer so you know in conclusion if you think you could feel better than you currently do then that's a good sign to make sure you're steadying your glucose levels that's mm-hmm. that's how i see it
1: yeah The moral of the story is don't raise the retirement age on the mitochondria or (laughs) or they'll go on stress. Well,
0: actually, you know, your mitochondria, what's cool about them is that even if they've been damaged by this stress, they can regenerate. So you can always get all of your capacity back. And so nothing is nothing is fatal. Nothing is forever. And you can retrain them and they come back. Um, So that's good.
1: So I think we've fully established that glucose spikes um, are pretty detrimental mm-hmm. to, to health. So maybe we can talk about some of the solutions that you proposed in the book for uh, controlling glucose spikes. Yes, that's and, a good um, idea. Let's do that. Let's do it.
0: Okay, so, so
1: where do you want to start?
0: Well, I think I want to start saying that what I've been doing over the past um, several years has been you know, reading all the cutting-edge science in this topic, trying to figure out... If there are ways and things we can do in our daily life to avoid those spikes and feel good. And so, in my book, The Glucose Goddess Method, mm-hmm. what I've done is I've taken the four most powerful principles to avoid these glucose spikes and start feeling better quite quickly without doing anything, you know, drastic, without cutting out any foods, because I love my pasta, I love my chocolate cake. So, like, the, the extreme diets are personally not going to work for me and I want to offer people some steps that are really easy. So it's a four week plan and it goes like this. Week one, we look at breakfast because it's very important for your glucose levels to have a savory breakfast, not a sweet breakfast. And we continue this breakfast for the full four weeks. And I have, you know, tons of recipes, inspiration. It's very fun. And a savory breakfast is essentially a breakfast based around protein. That's the main tenant of it. And that doesn't contain anything sweet, except some whole fruit if you want. Then week two, we incorporate... Can I just say
1: one thing? The the savory jam. So you have a lot of recipes in it. Savory jam... Like, that's a big star for me. (laughs) Seven minute eggs. No spike granola. Those are my three check marks. Oh, yeah. And 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 for everyone, you know, who's just listening, the the recipes in the book around savory breakfast will change your mindset completely around breakfast. There'll be no more bagels, muffins, Mm -hmm. like Glucose spiking, granola, pancakes, none of that stuff. This is a, a much tastier um, and obviously World. healthy way to go. Yeah. yeah and also, you <laughs>
0: feel so different, Jeff. You know, when you switch, your entire day goes differently. And if you've always had a sweet breakfast, you don't even know how good you feel if you switch over to something more savory, right? And the granola recipe okay. is a great example because most granolas are full of sugar and carbs and this version that i that i offer is like a a glucose steady version so even if you love granola Mm -hmm. you can totally still have this version based around nuts with greek yogurt and berries to enjoy Mm -hmm. it but keep your glucose steady so yeah we start with breakfast because it's so powerful and important (laughs) Uh, and then week two we incorporate one tablespoon of vinegar once a day so First of all, how do you do it? And then I'll explain why the hell we do it. And so you do it Mm -hmm. by putting a tablespoon of vinegar. It can be any type of vinegar in a big glass of water and having that once a day. Or I have lots of mocktail recipes, tea recipes, dressings. You can do it that way too. And the reason we add vinegar during the second week of the glucose guidance method is because vinegar contains a very powerful molecule. I'm going to quiz you, Jeff. Do you know the name of the molecule?
1: Oh, I do. Acetic acid. Right? Yeah, there you go. Good job. <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> and so
0: acetic acid is really cool and powerful and what it does is that it slows down how quickly starches break down to glucose in your digestive system and vinegar, well, acetic acid, goes to your muscles. And remember how I said that your muscles are really good at storing that glycogen? Well, it tells your muscles to store even more than usual. So as a result, anything you eat afterwards that contains glucose is gonna to lead to a smaller spike. So as a result, your energy will be steadier, have fewer cravings, you'll feel better, it'll be helping your health and your hormones. So it's c'est tout bénef, like we say in French. It's all good.
1: Yeah. It's all good. Is there any kinds of vinegar that we should watch out for? Do we need pasteurized vinegar? Does any vinegar count? Apple cider? Help us out there.
0: You can do any type of vinegar, like apple cider, white wine vinegar, cherry vinegar, balsamic, except be careful with the very syrupy balsamic glazes. That are more mm. like, you know, creams and syrups. Yeah. Um, those are full of sugar, so those don't work. But otherwise, any vinegar works. And I recommend like testing out a few of the of the little drink recipes and finding one that you like. For example, I just really got into white vinegar. I used to be an apple cider vinegar girl, and now I actually really mm. like the white vinegar vibe. So just I do too. You do yeah. too? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. It's a bit less intense as a taste. And if you get uh, you can try out different ones and see, you know, which one resonates with your palate, but also the the recipes are super nice. Um, There's a hot cinnamon tea with vinegar that I love in Mm. week two. Um, There's a turmeric mocktail, which is super fun. So you'll find inspiration. And I, I encourage people to sort of make it a little ritual, you know, have your little vinegar drink, help your glucose. It makes me feel so good now to drink that vinegar.
1: Right. So a tablespoon a day yes. keeps the glucose spikes away.
0: Yes. We need to make a t-shirt. Okay.
1: Good. <laughs> is there Are there any other foods that serve as glucose sinks or mm. vacuums, if you will? Um, sort of. If you can't manage the vinegar. I mean, vinegar seems like it's the number one option. Vinegar but, is the uh, best
0: option during the second week. But if you really can't manage it, you can swap it out for for lemon juice now, lemon mm-hmm. reduces glucose spikes to a different mechanism um, than the acetic acid in vinegar. But I know that for some people, it's just the vinegar thing just doesn't work. Or maybe your doctor told you, like, don't drink vinegar. And in that case, you can do the lemon option. But the word you said I love, with uh, any foods that are glucose vacuums. Well, in mm-hmm. week three, we incorporate a really wonderful substance, which is fiber that we just talked about. And so in week three of the method, what we do is we add a vegetable-based starter to one of our meals a day. So this can be very simple. It can be, you know, some cherry tomatoes from your fridge, or it can be my favorite recipe, backwards broccoli, or it can be a ton of other, you like that one?
1: (laughs) That was my, that was the one that I noted particularly. Also just because of the method of of making it is- It's backwards. Basically. It's backwards. <laughs> so it's cool. You don't put yeah. the
0: broccoli in the a pot of hot water. You put the hot water into a bowl of raw broccoli, and it's very cool. And I have to say, mm. you know, I love cooking, but also I'm quite lazy, and I don't have a lot of time, so I wanted all these recipes to be six ingredients or less, things you can just whip up, super simple. And, they're, you know, they're the things that I just cook every day to get my glucose hacks in, and I hope that that's how people will – Um, vacuum them up into their lives and they'll become just staples and habits. That's the point. We're not here to do like a complicated, you know, once a month like Sunday roast recipe book. This is stuff to do every day to do these glucose hacks and feel better. Mm. And the rest of the time during the method, Jeff, apart from doing the four hacks in the glucose goddess method, You do whatever you want. You drink whatever you want, you eat whatever you want. It's not restrictive, you're not counting calories. You're simply adding these hacks in, like sort of gentle giants in your day, and reaping the benefits and feeling better. But it's total freedom the rest of the time.
1: You do such an amazing job um, talking about cadencing of, of consumption. So what foods to eat, when to limit glucose spikes. And, uh, you inspired me to do something very embarrassing. But now when I, I I have like a date night with Skylar where, you know, we'll have a glass of wine and, you know, and, um, and I'll bring like a little baggie of walnuts with me. Nice, (laughs) I love And I'll pop them out and I'll eat some walnuts first before i drink my glass of wine why would i ever do something like that
0: (laughs) it's it's the glucose goddess's fault um that's that's (laughs) wonderful no because you're right you know the the nuts they have fiber they have protein they have fat in them and so those Mm. molecules really help reduce how quickly any glucose molecules coming down afterwards make it to your bloodstream and that's the whole concept of this veggie starter the fiber acts as a really amazing buffer or protective mesh so that any glucose molecules afterwards don't go through your bloodstream so much. And so the spike is smaller, even though you're still eating the same meal as usual, but you're actually even adding more food at the beginning.
1: Yeah. That's amazing. It's non-instinctual, mm-hmm. but it makes total sense when you understand uh, the mechanism. I love the way you describe that as the mesh or like this lattice work yeah. that sort of aligns the small intestine, and it just says slow down, slow the down. Slow exactly.
0: Down. No, it's making that intestinal wall, you know, uh, much thicker and more protective. And uh, it's really cool to learn how, you know, your biology can just do these things. I think it's wonderful. It's the interplay between your food and your body. It's really very wonderful. Um, And then finally, fiber
1: for my—I need fiber for my brain to slow down my thoughts. Oh
0: yeah, ooh, what's that (laughs) called? I don't know.
1: Maybe it's called meditation. (laughs) I don't know. Um, All right, let's get number four.
0: Okay, number four. So in week four, you're doing the breakfast vinegar and um, uh, fiber veggie starter, and then you add in ten minutes of movement once a day after a meal, and this can be super simple movement. It can be going for a walk cleaning your kitchen, doing some calf raises at your desk. Like it doesn't have to be, you know, intense workout with barbells and stuff. We're just talking simple stuff. You can watch TV and do some bicep curls with a bottle of water. Like just make it super simple for yourself. But why do we do this? Because our muscles, as I mentioned, are really good at soaking up that extra glucose. And so when you use them for 10 minutes after a meal, a lot of the glucose from the meal is going to go and be used for energy by your mitochondria and your muscles instead of hanging around and creating this big glucose spike. And so again, you don't have to change what you're eating the rest of the time. Just by adding this movement after one of your meals a day, you're going to get way fewer of the symptoms of any glucose spikes that you might be experiencing.
1: Yeah. I I have a bunch of different kooky rituals associated with um kind of post postprandial um uh movement and I get teased endlessly by my children. But anyways, I'll I'll after dinner I'll drop and do like fifty push ups. I know wow. that that's that's over that's over you know, that's over the top. Not everyone's gonna do that. But my kids are always like, there it goes, dad with his pushups right
0: after the meal, because you can wait up to 90 minutes to do your movement? Yeah,
1: not, not generally, not right after, you know, sometimes we'll, I mean, like you say, actually doing the dishes is actually a pretty good way because you're up and you're moving, you're going to the table, you're bringing things over, you're putting things away, you're drying. And it's also a nice family ritual. I've got, you know, my girls and we all do it together and that's nice. Um, but, um, when I'm violating my blue light clause and, um, and watching, you know, some Netflix or something with my girlfriend. Oh at my
0: night. Oh my God, Jeff, you watch Netflix.
1: I what? know it's coming out here It's a scandal. Um,
0: I love Netflix.
1: <laughs> I know. Sorry, but I will, uh, to compensate. I will, um, I will often be like on the ground. You know, with rolling on some massage balls or doing a few little, you know, some a little bit of resistance training or a few push ups yeah. or just some core stuff. And I feel great. I mean, I also like, I'd like to go to sleep with my food as fully digested as it possibly can be. Mm-hmm. So then when I am actually go to sleep, I'm in a more or less fasted state yeah. and that can take like three hours mm-hmm. unless you're helping move that process along. And so totally. just going for like a walk after dinner yeah. is just the best thing. Totally. So,
0: and I relate to the TV thing. Like I can't just watch TV. I have to be doing other things. So I'm either yeah, rolling yeah. a lacrosse ball under my foot or I'm just like stretching totally. or I'm folding the laundry. You know, I, I need to, I can't just watch TV. I'm like, but what else am I, I need to do other stuff.
1: <laughs> I know, I know. It. I'm the same way. You know, I feel like, oh, it's time scarcity. Like that, I have to I have to parallel process here exactly. to get the most out of life. Um, so. These are the four primary hacks that you talk about um, in this book. I know that in your previous book, um, there were, I think you had ten. Yes, but these are exactly. like the four, four like primary ones you can really, really focus on, and they're so simple. Like, there's really you can just integrate them into your life, and they're without sense, making cool. yourself miserable. Mm-hmm, <laughs>
0: you know? mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So Absolutely, it's, it's, and you know actually, when you think about it, these hacks that we now understand the scientific basis for, and we can see through the studies how they work on the body and why they're so powerful, these are things that we've known for a long time. You know, cultural yeah. w- wisdom, ancestral wisdom is here. We never used to have sweet foods for breakfast. We always had just regular, you know, meat and potatoes or whatever we ate the rest of the day. There was no, like, dessert for breakfast. That is an invention. Vinegar yeah. has been used for centuries in so many cultures around the world as a whole uh, food, the veggie starter. I mean, in France, we have crudité, which is raw veggies at the beginning of a meal. In Italy, antipasti, you know, in the Middle, middle East, they do herbs before the meals. Like, this is something mm. we've known. And the moving mm. after eating, like the walking after a meal, I don't think there's anything that is more, <laughs> more culturally prevalent than going for okay. a walk after eating. Like, I mean, So it's cool to me to realize that this cutting edge science is really connected to the ancestral wisdom and that our bodies just Soak them up and respond so well to these habits. When you focus on your glucose levels and you avoid the spikes, the first thing that happens is that you feel better, right? Because you're doing this for your health. You're helping your mitochondria, you're helping your neurons, you're balancing your hormones, and, you know, giving your body all this extra energy that you might not have had for a very long time. So we're here for health. We're here to prevent dementia, to reverse type 2 diabetes, to, you know, clear up your skin, to help your brain fog. But then what happens as well is that because when you steady your glucose levels your cravings dissipate your hunger reduces and insulin reduces which means you're burning fat more often what happens very often is that you also lose fat on your body as a consequence of those processes taking place and to give you some numbers So for the glucose goddess method, because I'm a scientist and I just love doing these sorts of things, I recruited 3,000 people in October 2022, and they all went through the method um, before anybody else, before I finished even writing the whole book. And 40% of them lost fat during these four weeks on their body, they lost weight. Even though they were eating more than usual, they were not counting calories, they didn't remove any foods from their diet, and they weren't even trying to lose weight. So just to show you that the obsession with weight loss at all costs and doing extreme diets and crazy stuff is not the way to go. Because if you naturally just help your health improve, if your body needs to lose weight, it will, just naturally, without you really trying.
1: Okay, so to summarize, our bodies evolved to handle periods of abundance and scarcity. But the cravings we experience in the modern era are not necessarily rooted in biological needs. They are more due to the glucose spikes and crashes that modern processed food and improperly combined foods tend to facilitate in our bodies. This creates a false but powerful sense of urgent hunger that is really hard to ignore. But there are solutions, such as adopting a savory breakfast, incorporating a tablespoon of vinegar or lemon juice daily before meals, adding a vegetable-based starter to one meal a day for fiber, and engaging in 10 minutes of movement after every meal. Okay, next up, is my friend Max Lugavere. Max is a health and science journalist, filmmaker, and host of the Genius Life podcast and author of Genius Foods, a New York Times bestseller that challenged popular understandings of the impact of diet on brain health. In our segment, we discuss the prevalence of metabolic dysfunction in the context of the standard American diet, also known as energy toxicity, characterized by overfeeding, undernourishment, and a sedentary lifestyle. But there is a fairly simple solution to this problem. And you guessed it, it has to do with protein, muscle building, and body recomposition. So here you have Max Lugavere with the details. One theme that seems to be kind of creaming to the top of a lot of these conversations is the importance of muscle. Hmm. and I listened to a number of conversations on your podcast, and I, I really highly recommend that everybody does. I think you were talking to Thomas DeLauer, to, um, what's the guy, Ted Naiman, is that is that Ted him? Ted Naiman, <laughs> he's, he's great, yes. Yeah. Um, but then, like, particularly with women, so I know our friend Gabrielle Lyon has her new book coming out, this kind of which focus on muscle centric medicine. I know you talked to JJ Virgin recently. um, And I know that you've been hitting the gym and focused on what, I think what you often talk about is body recomposition. Yes. um, Which I think is a really very good way of looking at it. So maybe we'll just kind of start high level. Um, Why is muscle so important?
2: Yeah, that is a fantastic place to start. I think... I think the reason why it's definitely worth talking about, especially today, um, because when you zoom out and look at the problems that are mainly affecting public health today, they are characterized in no small part by metabolic dysfunction Um, and metabolic dysfunction today, particularly in the context of the standard American diet, is sometimes referred to as energy toxicity. Like people tend to be, the the modern milieu is one such that the average person today is overfed, undernourished, and underactive. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people today are struggling with chronically elevated blood sugar. um, But even prior to that, chronically elevated insulin, you see other indicators of metabolic impairment, um, such as, for example, low levels of HDL. You see lots of visceral adiposity, so that's visceral fat, fat in the midsection that is particularly particularly egregious from the standpoint of health. And this is what the research is, is starting to show. And thankfully, we have a lot of champions now that are sounding this, this alarm. It all kind of comes back to muscle at the end of the day. Muscle muscle is the antidote for the problems associated with the Western diet and lifestyle, Um you know, there's no better way to encourage whole body insulin sensitivity than resistance training. And it's also all of the factors that we know that go into uh, supporting your skeletal muscle that also seem to really play an important role. I was just reading a new crossover study that came out or uh, that I saw shared earlier today that compared. Um, a, a, a quote-unquote high-protein diet with the Mediterranean diet, which is the Mediterranean diet is often lauded as being the hallmark healthful diet to prevent age-related chronic disease. And this high-protein diet wasn't even, um, I mean, it was only moderately higher in protein as in terms of the protein percentage as compared to the Mediterranean diet, but we saw even a 10% increase in protein um, as a, as a proportion of calories was associated with improvements in insulin resistance. So, and you know, we know that protein is the best macronutrient to support your musculature. So whenever we kind of like look at health through this lens, it seems to be, it seems to be the biggest needle mover. Um, And that's why I think it's so exciting because it's actually a, it's, it's a very simple recommendation as well.
1: Yeah. I'm so glad that you built that bridge between Muscle hypertrophy and metabolic health, because it's not obvious uh, to most people. Like, you know, what does uh, you know putting on additional lean muscle have to do with my blood glucose levels or my insulin sensitivity? Unless you kind of start to pry these things apart, you wouldn't necessarily immediately make that connection. Um, but that connection is is completely direct, and you know, just even product of my own personal experience. Um, I was pre-diabetic. I talk about that on the show quite a bit. It wasn't even that long ago, maybe four, three and a half, four years ago now. Um, well, wow. you know, kind of my initial window into that was to put on a CGM, hmm. um, you know, because and that just gave me transparency into at least one metric which was, you know, chronically high fasting glucose levels. So I was at about 125, 130 milligrams per deciliter fasting. So they was pretty high. Um, And so then I adopted a whole bunch of different protocols to obviously lower that. Um, And then, of course, as you mentioned, upstream from the glucose levels is insulin. So, you know, if my blood glucose, fasting blood glucose levels were there, my, my fasting insulin, my insulin levels were probably kind of off the chart at that juncture. Um, But the great news is that a lot of this stuff, if you get it, if you get at it, is reversible. So I adopted a whole bunch of different protocols, but where I really saw the huge decrease in my fasting blood glucose levels is when I started to focus more on protein and resistance training. Mm. And, um, And it turned out that like you said, that, that muscle is like a metabol or a glucose sink, right? You know, yeah. it's, um, so can you get, maybe get into that maybe with a little bit
2: more depth? Cause I know this is something that you know a lot about. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, your, your body is sort of like, uh, when it comes to your capacity to store glucose, which is sugar, um, your body is sort of like a, a studio apartment in New York city. There's just not many places to cram that additional sugar you've got your liver which can store depending on body size 100 125 grams of sugar in the form of glycogen but it's your musculature and you by the way your liver doesn't grow right so what you the, your musculature is the other place in which you can store sugar also in the form of glycogen but your muscle can grow and you you grow it via hypertrophic stimulus as you alluded to which is resistance training now If you were living in one of these so-called blue zones, and I have a bone to pick, actually, with the way that blue zones are marketed, but just, you know, for the sake of conversation, the blue zones are these communities around the world that are purported to have very exceptionally long-lived people. They're highly active. Um, They eat minimally processed diets. And they actually do eat a significant proportion of protein. And when you're active all day, your body is using that stored sugar. And we've seen this from studies where, you know, even a five-minute walk after a meal reduces post-meal blood sugar, post-prandial blood sugar, right? So, being active is a way to um, to reduce that blood sugar, but. Again, in the context of the standard American diet, where we're minimally active, we're chronically sedentary, you need places to stuff that sugar, and your musculature is really the best way to do that. And we were talking about insulin, chronically elevated insulin, hyperinsulinemia is a huge problem. When you're active, just muscle contraction stimulates the uptake of glucose from your blood. It, create, it turns your muscles essentially into a sponge, and you benefit from what's called insulin in, independent glucose uptake. So movement right. is crucially important and and again supporting your musculature making sure that you're you know robust in strength is a is a really great way to make sure that you're keeping your blood sugar levels healthy because again your muscles are where you store where you can store that sugar. And the other thing is you want to use the sugar that's being stored in your muscles. So you want to perform on a regular basis high intensity glycolytic anaerobic activity. Those are all big words but essentially what that that I, I use those terms to dis, to differentiate resistance training from just staying active, which I think a lot of people get the advice, very nonspecific advice, to just stay active. When you're walking around um, or even going on a, a light hike, which is obviously going to be incredibly good for you, it's a form of aerobic cardiovascular exercise, you're not using that stored sugar. That stored sugar stays in your muscles until... They're burnt off via higher intensity exercise. And resistance training is a perfect example of that. And the only um, you only use the sugar that's stored in the muscle that you're using. So for example, if you're doing really intense curls, you're not using any of the stored sugar that's stored in your legs. So you want to make sure that you're regularly um, strength training, and you want to make sure that you're strength training all of the major muscle groups in your body.
1: Mm, that's such a great point. Um... And I think, you know, you alluded to it is that muscles don't actually require insulin to uptake glucose when they're contracting. So that's uh, just even as if we need more reasons (laughs) to. uh, um, So let's segue to diet. So, you know, on your Instagram, I think you have posted as your number one post, kind of the 10 top things that you learned after, 300 podcast interviews i think i know you're probably like more like 390 or something like that now it's incredible um but i think number two or three was protein is king so what is the role of
2: protein in muscle and what's the best way to get it so protein is basically it's one of the three major macronutrients um you have protein carbohydrates and fat and Protein is, uh, differentiate, is differentiated from carbohydrates and fat in the sense that carbohydrates and fat are essentially energy. Um, and protein is not easily utilized by your body as energy because it's a building block. So it's an essential macronutrient because it, it actually is a building block for your body. It's not just uh, supportive of your musculature when protein breaks down into its constituent amino acids, I mean, amino acids form the backbone precursors to your neurotransmitters like serotonin, like dopamine, like acetylcholine, which is important for learning and memory. Um, it, it creates enzymes, all the myriad chemicals that it takes to make your body run. I mean, you are, you are chemistry at the end of the day and amino acids are crucially important. And of course, energy, helps that system run it provides the fuel but um so that's that's the role that protein plays in the body and it's so important in fact that it's believed that our hunger mechanisms like the 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 drive that we have hardwired into the hypothalamus like the most primordial region of the brain that exists in every organism to consume food to ingest food is driven Um, in large part by our requirement for amino acids. It's referred to as the protein leverage hypothesis. So we see that people who under eat protein tend to leverage their food environment to get those amino acids by consuming more carbohydrates and fat. And circling back to where we started this conversation, we live in a time of widespread energy toxicity. And so just to underscore the fact that carbohydrates and fat are energy we don't need to be eating more energy right most of us this is not a um recommendation you know i mean obviously there there is individual variation here but for the most part the majority of us we're energy replete right and so by using protein for its uh, satiety inducing effects it's a powerful way to get your hunger under control so that's one right so we know that When we eat more protein, we tend to consume less carbohydrates and fat, and that protein isn't easily utilized by your body as an energy source. It's just too expensive. Your body needs it to build muscle, and there's that. And to that end, you also get a bit of a caloric-free ride when you ingest protein. About 30% of the calories that you ingest by way of protein are burnt off via the digestion and assimilation of protein in and of itself. So you get about, you know, it's well known at this point, I think that protein has four calories per gram. So do carbohydrates and fat has nine calories per gram. But in actuality, you're only the yield um, of calories per gram um, with regard to protein is only generally about three calories per gram because it, it burns off a calorie just in the, in the digestion alone.
1: If we're looking for the highest quality of protein while also maintaining the right level of energy balance and calorie intake, that we want to look for more like lean cuts of meat, for example, stuff that doesn't have a ton of fat on it.
2: Is, does that is that come into your reasoning? Definitely, definitely. Yeah, I think um there you know, society tends to overcorrect with everything, and I think the the demonization of fat over the past uh, few decades has led to, and it was an unwarranted demonization at the essentially at the dawn of nutrition science. It just you know was this very seductive narrative to sell to the public and even healthcare professionals that fat made you fat, that saturated fats clogged your arteries the same way that they do a drain. Um, but we know that our biology is much more complex than uh, simple plumbing, mm-hmm. and so <laughs> and so That's society cute. has has sort of overcorrected where, you know, over the past couple of years, we've seen the rise of, um, you know, the, this sort of zeal surrounding dietary approaches like the keto diet and the low carb diet, where suddenly now I think people have believe, have wrongfully believed that fat calories are essentially a free ride um, and that, you know, there's really no downside of overconsuming saturated fat. Um, and I think, you know, as with most things, the truth tends to be sort of in the middle, you know, you have to kind of keep your horse blinders on, especially today and avoid the zealots on both sides of the, of the aisle, because the truth really does seem to be somewhere in the middle. And I do think there's an argument to be made for lean protein, um, being, uh, healthier. And I think, you know, for me, this has always been the case and something I wrote about in my first book, um, I didn't. I don't even feel like I need science to to make this recommendation. Um, it's it, logic, really. I mean, I think is all you need to realize that uh, the a modern cow is incredibly fatty, particularly when compared to wild game, which is the form of um, you know uh, meat that we would have likely consumed for the majority of our of our evolution. Also. When you take a modern cow and you feed it its biologically appropriate diet, i.e., grass, it's leaner. So that indicates um, the relative, you know, fatty acid uh, proportion that I think you're meant to consume. The fact that you feed a cow, it's uh, which is a domesticated animal, it's aber- it's biologically a biologically aberrant diet, and it becomes so fatty. Um, why we're not adapted to consume ruminant animals fed biologically aberrant diets. So, um, so yeah, I think, I think there's absolutely an argument to be made for lean, um, you know, for lean meat. And by the way, when you say lean meat, we're not saying fat free, like even lean, uh, like a New York strip steak or which, you know, I love or a uh, filet mignon, they still contain adequate fat. You're still getting adequate fat. Like nobody is deficient. In fat today, in the context of the standard American diet, um, and so, yeah, I'm a. i am I think eating lean meat is, is great, particularly particularly if you have fat to lose from your body. There's no need to to overdo the added fat if you have fat on your body that you'd like to lose. Right. I
1: mean, excess calories that aren't burned still get stored in fat in adipocytes in fat repositories. Yeah no matter if they come from carbs or if they come from from fatty acids. And I think we got a little bit lost in, in the woods there for a minute because we were so worried about carbs and its impact on insulin right. and the sort of hormonal argument for, for weight gain that we lost the old thermodynamics, you know, calories in, calories out argument. And it turns out, I think that both are true to some yeah. level. Um, and again, you know, you sort of, find your middle way eventually, but it's hard with the
2: zealots. You're right. Yeah, no, it's really difficult. Um, yeah. And actually fat is the most easily stored as fat and whatever, whatever dietary fat you eat, you're going to burn that off first before you tap into your own fat silos. So I think, you know, and I, and I personally experienced this earlier in the year, I did a little bit of of a fat loss experiment and, um, opting mainly for, uh, lean meat and cutting out the majority of added fats. So from even fats from healthful oils and butter and things like that, uh, I, I reduced it all dramatically. And I saw the fat, I saw fat on my own body just come off effortlessly. Now you still need to ingest adequate fat to support hormone synthesis, um, and saturated fats play an important role there. You still need fat to facilitate digestion. Um, that's, crucially important also the absorption of many fat soluble nutrients whether they're essential nutrients like the fat soluble vitamins or even compounds plant compounds that we know are fat soluble like um, carotenoids uh, are Mm. super important to eye health and brain health you need fat to do that job to uh, absorb those nutrients but that being and of course omega-3 fatty acids are really important and essential Um, but beyond that, I think that, you know, the, the fact that society is overcorrected and now it's like, you see these carnivore dieters eating excessively fatty meats covered with butter, covered with cheese, all this stuff. It's, um, yeah, I don't think it's super smart. And that's why you see people on those diets. They will lose weight initially when compared to their prior diets, which typically are the standard American diet, you know? Right. Um, but, uh, but they inevitably end up plateauing until they realize that added fat, you know, like, especially when in excess isn't doing anybody any favors. Yeah, I heard
1: you reducing your amount of even like extra virgin olive oil, which obviously has a ton of amazing polyphenolic attributes, et cetera, but it's still highly, highly caloric if you're gonna just dump yeah. uh, you know, multiple tablespoons of, of extra virgin
2: olive oil on your salad or whatever. So yeah. yeah. And I've hey. I've been I've been the biggest advocate for uh, extra virgin olive oil consumption. I still consume it. It's a, an amazing, wonderful food. But whereas before I I kind of you know I was in, maybe a little bit indoctrinated into this idea that yeah. it's a free ride, a caloric yeah. free ride. I would just pour it on everything liberally. Um, mm-hmm. Now I put uh, you know a teaspoon or a half a tablespoon um, into my salad and, uh, and I get all the benefits from it. It's great, but I'm not loading up on the calories.
1: Yeah. I've I've also just started with like the, the non-fat or the low-fat Greek yogurts and the low-fat cottage cheeses, these things that I totally had written off for years. Um, and I don't love them necessarily taste wise, although the cottage cheese is, is okay. But, um, but the low fat or no fat Greek yogurt, obviously the, the protein, uh, is off the chart, but yeah. then it also lets me add other things and, and get my calories kind of from the other elements that I might want to add to that, to that yogurt, you know? So it's just, you know, this is the fun little, <laughs> uh, Petri dish style experiments that, that you can get into. I love um, it. yeah. So I'm wondering, do you take a, like a big bolus of protein in the morning and is the body more, um, equipped
2: to metabolize protein in the morning? How do you do that? Yeah, I definitely do that. And I, I'm not as familiar with the literature on, um, whether you know, I, I think we're probably like Dr. Gabrielle Lyon has talked about the fact that we're primed in the morning, and that that makes sense to me. That we've had this overnight fast. For me, the ma- the major reasons why one should bolus protein f- fairly soon after one wakes up is that you know you go through these cycles of muscle protein breakdown and muscle protein synthesis, and whether or not you are. Um, preserving or even accruing new muscle mass um, is about being spending more time in that sort of anabolic pro-muscle protein synthesis state as compared to the muscle protein breakdown state. Um, and so, you know, this uh, nutrition plays a major role here and particularly, specifically the availability of muscle growing amino acids like your essential amino acids, which is what we, we talked about. And so after an overnight fast, you are in a state of muscle protein breakdown. And so getting that bolus of protein, which I like to you know, aim for 30 to 50 grams of, of protein for my first meal, you're basically, you're halting that muscle protein breakdown process and you're stimulating muscle protein synthesis. So that's really important. I'm, I, I put enough effort into my workouts where I'm at this point trying to do whatever I can to optimize you know, that effort that I put in, right? Like you don't want to leave money on the table. And so getting that high protein bolus first thing in the morning or soon, you know, like an hour after you wake up is I think really important. And we're now also starting to see uh, research mounting showing us that that first meal of the day really tends to kind of dictate your hunger pattern for the ensuing. 16 hours. Mm, And we see that high protein first thing in the morning tends to lead to less hunger over the course of the day. It tends to lead to, for example, uh, less energy intake at the following meal. So lunch. Um, and so if you want to be walking around all day hungry, eating a low protein, um, meal for the first meal of the day. The continental breakfast seems to be a great idea. Whereas if you want to make sure that you've got your hunger levels in check so that you can focus on other things and that you're not, you know, predisposing your body to undo weight gain, you really do want to focus on on eating a high protein breakfast. Um, super, super important. I know a lot of people enjoy skipping breakfast and then they end up in the in the rec room or the break room or whatever at their office, chowing down on the donuts or the bagels and the high sugar coffee. That is a, that is a recipe for Muscle catabolism and excess levels of hunger. So you really want to do stack. You really want to stack the the. If you want to stack the odds in your favor, focus on getting a uh, thirty to fifty gram bolus of protein an hour after you wake up. Mm. And are you of this school of
1: about a gram per pound uh, of protein? Uh, I said I should say a gram of protein per pound of body weight per day. That's a more
2: clear way of yeah. phrasing it. I think that's a little bit, I think that's a little high um, for most people. I think you could probably get away, particularly if you're overweight, you can get away with less protein. Um, You can use the, the, the general recommendation is to optimize muscle health. You want to aim for 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram of, of ideal weight put into, into pounds. That's about one, that's about 0.7 grams of protein per pound of ideal weight. So, you know, if you're not terribly overweight, you can use your body weight and try to get 0.7 times your body weight every day in protein. Um, if you are very overweight, you can use your goal weight, which is a great way to approximate your uh, level of lean mass. Cause that's really what it's about. Um, you want to get that grammage of protein per pound of lean mass. Uh, and so, yeah, that's what I, I strive to get every day. But here's the, here's the caveat. If you're getting, when you are really trying to lean out and get as lean as possible, it may help to, Im- to increase your protein um, even higher potentially uh, because you're at greater risk of muscle loss when you get really lean. But that's usually not a problem for most people. That's more of like a, comp- you know, for com- competitive uh, bodybuilders and the like. Um, but 0. 0.7 grams per pound of body weight, I think is a great target for most people. So I'll sum it
1: up. Extreme diets are not the answer. Avoiding glucose spikes are at least one of the answers. So is body recomposition, because muscle building is considered the antidote to many problems associated with the Western diet and Western lifestyle. Protein consumption helps manage hunger and supports muscle growth, which optimizes overall health. Now, if you enjoyed this show, Please subscribe and hit the notification bell so you never miss an episode. Leave a comment to let us know your thoughts and don't forget to share our content with others who might benefit from this valuable information. Okay, that's all from the commune for today. My name is Jeff Krasno and I'm here for you.